by the time we ended up making the movie, I'd written the script like a hundred times. And that gave me the most confidence because if someone said, Hey, why doesn't X thing happen? I felt confident that I'd already written whatever that suggestion was. was. So I felt really solid in the script. Um, I felt really solid in the source material and that gave me the confidence to do it, you know, um, is, you know, I've got the blueprint, I've got the script and I, now I just need to follow this blueprint and be true to the emotions that this blueprint lay, plays out. And that's the goal for the rest of this film. My name is West Givens and welcome back to the Tungsten Originals podcast. You just heard part of my conversation with writer and director Ned Cooper. We discussed his recent short film, Hammer, how he helped his lead actor go through an intense physical transformation, the ways in which his crew were pushed to their limits, and why he thinks it's this film that finally made him a director. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Episode 78 of the Tungsten Originals Podcast. Ned, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Going well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. I'm really excited to have you on. We met on Pink, which right. feels like for forever ago. That's a Tungsten original project. Uh, and that was my first time meeting you, but I've heard a lot about you for a long time. You make some really great stuff, and I'm especially excited to dive into Hammer, which is your most recent, and if I may, most impressive project. I don't want to speak out of term there. Hopefully you, <laughs> Thank hopefully you, you agree. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into all that, I want to learn about how you became a filmmaker because, you know, I mean, we met on pink, but I don't know too much about your backstory. So how did you start this journey of being a filmmaker? Yeah, my journey is, is very ridiculous. So I think that <laughs> Perfect. those are the best kind. I'm trying to think exactly how this started, but uh, my mom needed something to do with me one summer and there was like an iMovie camp at the local Apple store. And she was like, oh, okay, wow. go, go do this. Like, go let the, uh, was... the genius bar teach you how to make Yeah. Movies. The genius bar taught me how to make movies. Uh, I, wow. no guests has said was... that by the way, you're the first person to, for that to be the backstory. Isn't that really weird? Well, it gets yeah. weirder. Just wait. Uh, uh, I, there was definitely a, there was definitely an interest previous to that of like, you know, the classic film story of I'm watching Star Wars all the time. I'm going to the movie store with my dad, uh, you know, yeah. looking at giant Kill Bill posters and things like that. So that's awesome. And he's like, you yeah. can't watch that yet. You're not old enough. And um, but I don't think there was ever a shared interest in terms of like me being like mom and dad. I really want to make narratives. But they're like, hey, go to this iMovie camp at the local mall. And at the time, parkour had just become like this huge thing on the Internet. Yeah, and I'm like, well, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Right. And I'm going to start basically learning how to do a flip and record it and then put yeah. it in my iMovie movie for camp. <laughs> um, so funny enough, it started out as making parkour videos. Wow. And then it transferred into a series of action films that I created with my little brother, who was like six at the time, and my best friend, Willie, who's composing Hammer. And we would get oh, my cool. little brother uh, and we'd give him nerf guns and we'd set the camera up tripod and the whole movie would be willie and i in different outfits and then gilbert killing us as he like <laughs> battles through stages of you know whatever our basement the backyard the alley right right and uh you know we even we would tell our like teachers in middle school hey we make movies and the teacher was like oh that's amazing you know bring it into class show us <laughs> and i had just figured out how to do visual effects and figured out how to do a blood splatter and i thought that was the coolest effect ever right so i would 
have someone get shot and then I'd cut out a frame and then I'd have blood go everywhere. <laughs> and I thought that was the coolest effect ever and didn't understand why that was bad or offensive. And right. so we not went to our for an elementary school. <laughs> yeah, not good. Well, we were, I think we were in like sixth grade or seventh grade at the time. So, but we go into seventh grade and she's like, okay, guys, Ned and Willie have a, a movie to show you. And the first 10 seconds is me getting my head blown off. And she's like, <laughs> shut this down, shut this down. <laughs> Christian, Christian middle school. And right. we were not allowed to show movies ever again uh, in school. I never knew that Apple did iMovie camps. Like really, I've heard so many stories about how people get interested in film. And typically it's like, I had a high school class and that inspired my thing. But going right. to a mall and learning how to use iMovie is pretty amazing it's pretty yeah i didn't know i don't even know if they still do it but they yeah did it when yeah I was a kid. <laughs> now it's just the final cut camps that's what it is now yeah the final um, cut camps. i was a big yeah. final cut guy for a while when did you start like taking it seriously because i think a bunch of people make fun head getting blown off videos when they're in seventh grade you know i know i certainly uh made variations of that kind of stuff but when were you like this is the career I was later than I think a lot of people and a lot of our peers is I was finishing up my junior year in high school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, mm -hmm. you know, my grades weren't the best and I was trying to figure out my life. And uh, I went on a college tour with my dad and we saw SCAD first and then we went yep. to, you know, six or seven state schools. But since we had seen SCAD first, every school after that became infinitely less cool. Now that I've seen right. that they have a green screen room and three yeah. reds. And, right. you know, I don't really care about this school's swim team. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, that became like really, really attractive to me. And at the time coming into SCAD, I wanted to do visual effects because mm -hmm. later on in my high school, you know, I had a high school senior film class, but a lot of what I was doing was shooting stuff and shooting plates for my visual effects rather than really trying to construct a great script or narrative is I was very editing based and I was very visual effects based. Um, and so I came into SCAD wanting to edit and then with a visual effects minor, which I've since dropped. Um, mm. But I entered, I entered on that post side and I was super mm. amped about it. Um, and I, you know, I love SCAD. It was really amazing to go to the film 100 and my professor was Megan Lombardo. Shout out Megan Lombardo. She's the best. <laughs> but I was like, oh my gosh, you've been, you know, the first AD on Glee in Modern Family and every yeah. good television, you know, comedy for the last right. 10 years. That's really intimidating. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I've got nothing to my name. And, uh, you know, that was fantastic. But the the peer group, you know, element of SCAD has been the best part of it is meeting meeting people like yourself and meeting other people who I'm like, mm. okay, now I can have like a really detailed conversation about film. Um, yeah. And people who share the same passion as you and people who are able to, you know, if you need a production designer, great. There's 10 awesome production right. designers that are available right. at the school. You mm. know, if you need actors, um, you know, which has been fantastic. Not to go on too big of a tangent, but you know, I, there's always this conversation about like, is film school worth it? And I think especially at the height of COVID with, uh, online school, that topic was like, you know, kind of trending again, both film school and just college in general. And that's something that I always go back to like, yeah, you don't need a film degree to be a filmmaker, obviously, but like, I'm so glad I went to a place like SCAD because I met other filmmakers because I knew no one in small town mississippi and so that's sure, i think sure. that's really what you're like the access to the equipment is super important professors is super important and the resources in general but like i feel like half of what you're paying for is just being in um in a place with other people who care about the same stuff 
you know? Right. And then, then you find your, I mean, I've found so many people that I want to work with forever, like Joe and Reagan. I want to build this company with them and I met them at SCAT. So right. that's always right. something I go back to whenever people have that conversation. No. And that's fantastic. Once you construct a team, it's like, great. There's no, yeah. you know, there's no worrying about it ever again. Yeah, exactly. These are my, these are my people. people. Let's keep making films together. Yeah, exactly. So was that film 100 class, the class that took you off the post route? And more no. behind camera stuff. <laughs> no, so I, the, my film 100 was this project called Melissa's Maze, and the whole thing is green screen. It's like three or four <laughs> minutes of green screen, nice. and it was ridiculous. And I, I myself did like thirty visual effect shots for it, forty visual effect shots for it, <laughs> and and it didn't render at the last second because we were shooting 4K, and I had done like yep. comps with like forty layers, and we were like, okay, we're going to show the premiere uh you know filed to the class and they they, yeah. they liked it and and megan lombardo said you know ned you should go into visual effects you know after that and mm. i didn't uh and later on she ended up being my writing professor and helping me out a lot with the mm. script for hammer actually which was great gotcha. um but i'm not sure exactly when the post route shifted well actually i went so in between my freshman and my sophomore year i interned at uh the mill in la which is a post-production house that does coloring and they do visual effects and while I was there, I did I did a bunch of compositing work, and there was an older compositor there named Dog, who was this dude um, from the Netherlands who was the coolest guy ever. You know, would motorcycle to work every day, and he had been everything in his life. Like he had been a you know a boom operator, he'd been a director, he'd been everything, and now he's working visual effects. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of like Ned, you should you, know, you should be a director. There's no power in visual effects. You know, hmm. try to be something where you can make creative decisions. And that kind of changed my whole yeah. view on it. And then that's when I started trying to learn how to write so that I could write my own scripts. Wow. Shout out to dog. That's awesome. Yeah. Shout out to dog. Dog is <laughs> yeah. the homie. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I know you've done a, a ton of DP work and camera team work, and now you're starting to transition. Um, or I guess I should say focusing more on writing and directing. Uh, yeah, definitely. you've got a lot of writing stuff that you're working on right now. Um, how have you grown? Like, as a filmmaker going both of those routes because DP and director they're they're both like not similar at all, but there's also like, there's a Venn diagram with a really big middle part, I think between the DP and the director, because you're one of the top people in the department. You're like working really alongside the director and you obviously are making a lot of creative decisions. So right. how do you think like working on one affects your work and your approach as the other? It's a really good question. When it comes to the opposite, when it comes to direct, you know, directorial, whatever skills transferring to DPing, I kind of, when I DP at this point, I'm trying to just turn it off and then just be, right. you know, just be a tool for whoever I'm working with, whoever the director mm -hmm. is, and we're going to make their movie and do their thing. And, you know, if anything, the directorial experience may help me say, you know, let's get this coverage first. Cause I don't want this actor to get tired or something, you know, right but on, on a, on a miniature Thing, I try to shut off all the directorial stuff when I DP because that can be really frustrating for collaborators if, you know, mm -hmm. the DP is out of line. Like, you know, when, I, when I'm DPing, I just want to be a tool and make the movie that the person who hired me to DP wants to make and give my input, mm -hmm. but they can decide whether or not that input's valuable or if it's going to be, you know, used. Mm -hmm. um, and on the opposite, opposite route, it's been super, super helpful of, you know, I really believe that the more you know technically, the more you're able to do, uh, you know, make decisions that are influenced by that technology. Like if you don't know mm -hmm. a certain piece of technology exists, you're not going to be able to utilize it for an emotional impact. 
And, right. you know, people like Fincher are incredible at that. Um, but if you, if you ignore the technical side of film, you're actually losing out on the ability to make an emotional impact really efficient. And there was a lot of like really important elements to figuring out like a camera selection or lens selection for hammer, especially because it was such a action packed film and we had to do high speed mm -hmm. wrestling and we needed options for frame or for frame rates and we needed options for shutter speed. And, mm -hmm. you know, we needed a camera that was going to be in small places. We've got a big location. That's a tiny bathroom. So we mm. can't be bringing like an Alexa classic in there. Cause that's already too big, you know? Yeah. Um, so all of those decisions need to come into the story world, but you know, I worked with Kai Dixon who shot hammer. He's fantastic. Absolutely kills it every time. And mm. I'm so glad that I did. And I was able to let go of a lot of the creative decisions on the technical side, uh, mm. you know, to serve the story of Kai can focus on that and I'll focus on actors and there won't be any need right. to go back and forth on that. Right. Well, I'm glad you're bringing up Hammer because I want to dive into that. Before we do, can you explain a little bit about the story, when you made the film, the kind of background behind it all for those who don't know? Yeah, sure. So Hammer is a film I just completed in my junior year, and it's about a high school wrestler named Evan Latona who is concussed during his regionals finals match. And against the wishes of his father, who is also his coach, he begins to train and lose weight in secret, hoping to qualify for states given that it's his last opportunity to do so because he's a senior. Um, and the film kind of came about, I started writing it in my sophomore year and we just, uh, that winter break, we went to Italy, Palermo, Italy to do our side um, mm -hmm. for Nico and Emily Dillard, who are right. fantastic Another filmmakers. Film. Yeah. And while I was there, uh, Jessica Lewick was producing that film and Walker Cody was acting in that film and Kai Dixon shot that film. And I had like a draft seven that was improperly formatted and really bad and i was like hey look you know i'm obsessed with this wrestling movie will you guys do it with me and they were all like yep and then i was like this is fantastic and then we went from there, <laughs> there <you go. laughs> um, and we started you know we started training walker how to wrestle so my roommate uh matt paulson is a is a state qualifying wrestler from colorado really great guy really great wrestler and we started going to parks in savannah and teaching walker all the basics and all the moves and then Corona hit and we're like, ah, well, you know, uh, this is going to be delayed for a very long time, mm -hmm. but, uh, it gave, it gave a lot of room for really long conversations about how we're going to pre-produce it. You know, locking down locations became so much more difficult once we needed to get people in drink COVID because there's, there's big sequences in the film that you saw like the regional scene, for example, the third scene of the film has a crap ton of people in it. And it's mm -hmm. like, that is not going to slide, uh, yeah. now during Corona. Um, but you know, everyone's been saying this that has a film in this same situation, but the extra time that was given to us, you know, by COVID ended up being nothing but beneficial for the film and mm -hmm. helped the script get better and helped, you know, Walker ended up having basically a full year to develop the character because of Corona. And he wouldn't have had that time. We would have shot it, you know, six months later, you know, which is still a lot of time. But because of that, you know, Walker was able to hit the gym every single day and get as buff as he can possibly get. And, you know, he ends up bleaching his hair. He learned how to wrestle. Yeah. We had really in-depth conversations about, you know, the character. He was able to FaceTime uh, Mark Sims, the guy who plays the coach in, in my film, you know, a million times and work on lines. Um, so all of that ended up just benefiting us. You were saying everyone's saying that. I've definitely been the one saying that. I'm very grateful for all this extra time. <laughs> I'm sad yeah, about the, the situation, but yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, if I understand it correctly, you were, were a wrestler in high school as well, right? 
Right. What part of that did you want to like, like, why did you want to tell that in a narrative sense, like that life of wrestling and, and that drive to succeed in that sport? Yeah, sure. That's, that's super great. So I was, I was a high school wrestler and all of those experiences influenced this film um, mm -hmm. very clearly. But one of the big things that I really wanted to push for is that it has to be something that I relate to and have felt, but it also mm -hmm. needs to be entertaining. So I can't let my personal experience get in the way of something that's better, you know? So right. there's a lot of yeah. things in the film that I've never experienced. Like the wrestler gets concussed. I've never gotten concussed, but that creates mm -hmm. great conflict. So I'm going to, he's going to get concussed. Right. Um, so trying to figure out how to make it both deeply personal, but also as entertaining as possible. And that ended up being a conversation with whenever I pitched the idea to someone, people are like, oh, wrestling looks kind of weird. The moves aren't, you know, that cool. It's a weird sport. But what people really latched onto and had, you know, a deep resonance with was the weight cutting. Because mm -hmm. my senior year, I ended up wrestling 132 pound weight category. I weigh like 165 now. At the time, I weighed 150. So I lost mm -hmm. 18 pounds to wrestle my senior year. And that sounds like crazy talk to a lot of people. And it was incredibly hard and uh, gave me an incredible competitive advantage because my bone structure and my body was the size of someone who weighed 150. Mm -hmm. And once you get rid of all the food and water in your system, then you're just skin and bones and you're bigger and stronger than everyone in your weight class. Mm -hmm. um, but I was talking to Walker a little bit about you know, all the implications of that and it's terrible for your body and it's terrible for your mind. And, you know, even talking about moments with him where you're literally the lightest that your body could possibly be. Cause you can only, you can only afford to be that weight. You can only afford to be like, you know, for example, 152 in the narrative that we constructed, you can only afford to be that much weight for like an hour. Otherwise your body's going to fail. Hmm, so you have right. to get down to that weight, weigh in and immediately eat food. Um, right. So your body weight spikes like 20 pounds, but I was having conversations with about this with people and it ended up being a really big conversation topic of male body image issues and body, mm -hmm. or, you know, body dysmorphia and looking at films like black swan and looking at sports like ballet that really encourage a certain type of, you know, body. It's an ideal, beautiful body. And then looking at kind of an equivalent on the male side of wrestling. Um, is the, the smaller you are, the more competitive advantage you have. And that, that can be awful. And all of mm -hmm. the, you know, all of the gross ways that I show people cutting weight and hammer, I've either done myself or I know people who've done, uh, done them to make weight and they're rough. That's so interesting. So is that something that you didn't like when you're writing it and, and developing the narrative, uh, and kind of the themes that you want to hit was that idea of body image something that like wasn't really at the forefront and that only came up from your conversations with other people in class no it was, it was definitely it was definitely at the forefront it just i never i wouldn't want the movie to be defined by just body image or just wrestling. yeah for sure you know i would right. i would hate for it to be like oh that's that movie about body image or that's that movie about wrestling i'd love for it to be right a story about a father and a son first and foremost, and then mm -hmm. branch out from there. So that relationship is the heart of the film and everything else is secondary. But, mm -hmm. you know, that, that was definitely at the forefront of my mind for a lot of it. Just, just the internal, you know, conflict of having to lose weight and that mm -hmm. being a definite number that you need to be like, you can't be right. 0.1 pounds over this thing. You have to be 152.0. There's no other weight that you're allowed to be.
Um, and that was what was really interesting is that, you know, people, it's, it's not, a, it's not an uncommon thing, you know, for people to completely just get attacked for, or you, you miss weight at a championship. You can't wrestle, you're disqualified and people will, you know, people will talk about it for years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like one of the most embarrassing things you can do to the sport is the only way to miss weight is to stop working. And if you missed weight, you clearly stopped working. And, hmm. you know, Jeez. that's the, that's the, that's the name of the game. It's cut yeah. And if you, yeah. you know, you won't wrestle, so you hmm. gotta make it happen. I'm really glad you, you brought up the point about making something that's super personal and inspired by your real life experiences but not being restrained by that because blueberries is a very similar story. It's like almost semi-autobiographical of real things that I experienced, but that was something that I kind of wrestled with a lot in my senior two class. Whenever I was having these discussions with, you know, my class, we do a table read and with my professor is like, um, I don't want people to like it just because it's personal. I want it to, I, I hope someone who doesn't know me or cares about me or knows my family, anything to watch it and still have that same impact. But in the same way, because it's so personal, there are times in which I would write something and I'm like, well, that's not true to the real life story, but I, and I'm now I've kind of gotten over this. Now I can fully comprehend it since I've matured as a writer a lot more. Um, you know, I, I've realized now like, well, just because it's not true to the real life story, like it's not a documentary, you know, like it's true right. to the story that I'm creating and telling, you know what I mean? So that's right. why, like, I've, I've heard some people, like when we were home filming it, um, you know, some people will say like, Oh, who's playing your grandmother? Uh, which makes sense because it's like almost exactly what happened in my life. I was sure to right. say like, no, it's someone else. <laughs> like they're right. playing a character that is a grandmother. Like it's not my grandmother. Um, so was there anything like other than, um, you know, getting concussed, was there anything that you had to kind of convince yourself that was better for the film hammer to change from what happened in your real life? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the concussion, the concussion element of the story is off the bat. One of my solutions to the personal right. problem of look, you know, I'm watching short films, either through my classmates or through film festivals or online. And if they don't get me, or if I'm reading the script, if you don't get me by page three, or if you right. don't show me what's up on, on minute three, I'm going to click away and I'm not going to read your script and I'm not going to watch right. your film. So, you know, what can happen on minute three or page three, you know, preferably mm-hmm. earlier if you can do it. But, you know, with me, I it, the first act ended up blending itself. I need to explain all these wrestling rules and then I need to do something cool. Right. So. For me, it was bottom of three, but I think page two is a great way to do it in a, in a short film as well. But the concussion ended up being like, how can I hook an audience in two minutes, mm-hmm. two and a half minutes, yeah. and then have them locked in for the rest of the film? And that mm-hmm. was my hope is that that moment really locks you into something. Um, and the other elements is there's a, there's a pretty intense abuse scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. And that scene I've not experienced. And I have a great relationship mm-hmm. with my dad. But that was something that I had to do more research on and figure out how to do it mm-hmm. and figure out how to show real violence. And and the way that yeah. violence is treated in the film is one of the most important things to me because, you know, not to, not to critique things that have been over critiqued, but there's a lot of modern movies that cut too much during their action sequences and you know they're fake. And when you show violence in one take, then you know it's real. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to hide. There's no trickery to what you're seeing. So you know that mm-hmm. you're actually watching someone get hurt or watching someone get abused 
and the audience yeah. can't take a breath because it's one shot. And I think that's really the right way to show violence is to show it in its full impact and not try to sugarcoat it or make it look too glamorous or cool. Yeah. And that's, it makes it harder to watch, but in a good way, <laughs> like harder to watch right. in that it's uncomfortable. And it's like, I, a, a feeling that I love to try to emulate in my films, but also that I love when other films give me this feeling. It, it feels like, like I was in the kitchen and this thing just started happening and I like wasn't supposed to see it, you know? And I think one of the best ways right. to do that is to not have the crazy cuts, like, because that can be like, Hey, remember guys, this is a movie, you know, but that right. moment I was, it was like, I was like, shit, when is it going to cut away? Like, this is so man that it was, it just really like, I, I watched it last night. So this is all fresh on my mind, but I think that was the perfect way to handle something like both when it's, when it happens in the film, because it's, you know, right where that kind of level of conflict should be happening in terms of like the structure of it. Um, and just right. after seeing these characters develop and you start to care about them, like it was very well done. <laughs> so good Thank job you. on that. I like that choice. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think it was, I think it was Sean Bobbitt who said that whenever you cut in film, you let the audience take a breath. And sometimes you want to make them hyperventilate and cut really quick. And sometimes you want to make right. them hold their breath. And that was the yeah. principle of, I want them to hold their breath and watch this thing and not be distracted by yeah. some sort of film effect. So I want to dive into your uh, relationship with the actors and how you directed them because, you know, Walker Cody, who was also the lead actor in Blueberries, an actor I want to work with for the rest of my life. He did an absolutely incredible job in Blueberries and he did a great job in Hammer as well. You know, he's someone who has you know acting training he's been on set before but from my understanding of what walker told me on blueberries is that mark sims this was his first time acting right right and he was right. like wasn't he your high school wrestling coach yeah so he was my high school wrestling coach yeah he is a yeah. crazy character and he's awesome <laughs> he looks like uh, a high school it, wrestling coach it doesn't he so the casting the yeah. casting ended up being easy because I, he literally knew right. everything the decision with him, the decision to use Mark Sims, who is my actual wrestling coach versus an actor, was, you know, wrestling is one of those sports where the guys who are coaching it are like 5'2", buff as hell, messed up ears, and those dudes are menaces. Like, right. a basketball coach can't dunk on his, you know, uh, on his people, you know, on the people he's coaching. There's right. no way. But a it's wrestling an interesting coach could be power the dynamic that you can right. play with. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting power dynamic because a yeah, basketball coach is not going to beat one of his players in a 1v1, but a wrestling right. coach is, a, you know, 10 times out of 10 generally. So mm -hmm. the options were either find a really solid adult actor and teach them how to wrestle because that was fundamental towards mm -hmm. the character is the character of the coach needs to be someone who's very physically opposing. Like it can't be any other mm -hmm. way where you, you see an actor you'll see scenes where you can tell the actor isn't actually intimidating and they're pushing it. And then the other actor has to pretend to be scared, even though the person is the person that is not, mm -hmm. you know, that scary. But with Mark Sims and Walker, both of them are crazy people and were super amped to do all the violence themselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. super amped at the idea of, of doing these scenes. <laughs> I'm and, not surprised that Walker was amped for that. I got to say. Oh, he's, Walker is the best. Walker was very yeah, amped to do is. anything that was real. Like, you know, but the thing is like, if Walker, tried his hardest at a hundred, you know, if Walker tried his hardest to beat Sims at anything, Sims would drive him into the ground. Mm -hmm. Sims has got, you know, 30 years of jujitsu and wrestling and MMA and all this stuff. And he would have yeah. destroyed Walker. So we use the real life implication that Sims is a way better wrestler and a way <laughs> better fighter than Walker. Yeah. And that's just what we did. Um, 
but the difference the difference in directing was absolutely massive and was one of the most hmm. difficult things in the film is walker is a trained actor and is great and we'd have hour-long conversations about you know evan and what's evan's feelings on religion or the military or whatever and that would help inform the character and lots of script analysis and lots of rehearsing sims on the other hand is from my hometown of richmond virginia not in savannah i can't rehearse with him and he right you know is he's not an actor so he has no idea what he's supposed to be doing or what's supposed to be happening but sims was a bit of a wild card because i couldn't rehearse them 100 percent because we were always on zoom so i mm-hmm. knew that whatever i was getting was going to be 10 percent off of what the maximum yeah. was and he couldn't act off of anybody he's on zoom he's not going to do the mm-hmm. best job so you know a lot of it ended up being tailoring the role to mark sims who plays coach both walker's role and mark sims's role were written for those people hmm. but on top of that uh mark sims and i went back and we rewrote a lot of dialogue together you know i did hmm. a pass of what i thought he would say he did his own pass where he rewrote the whole script oh, cool. every line that he would say and he rewrote how he would say those lines hmm. and then i made a third version of the script that's the best of playlist of my favorite things that he contributed and my favorite things that i had already written yeah um so the final dialogue for his character is, you know, probably, I don't know, 30% to 50% authored by himself. Wow. Um, so he he's fantastic in that, in that, uh, in that way, you know, there's mm-hmm. the big speech in the film that that coach gives. And a lot of that ended up being uh, what he wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And I gave him kind of guidelines of this is, these are the points I want to hit about, mm-hmm. you know, looking back and being able to say that I, I couldn't have tried harder and he kind of ran with it. But a lot of the things that coach says he's saying, and a lot of the stuff is ad-libbed. Um, and that was one of the other really valuable things to having a real wrestling coach is in mm. scenes where he needs to be coaching, he's actually coaching. And the extras in the film are real wrestlers for the most part. Oh, and interesting. Okay. So when you see them wrestling, it's real wrestling and he's actually coaching them. So hmm. it, it was, it was also a way to get as much authenticity as possible is, you know, in the film, you know, whatever, there's probably like 12 scenes with him in, in in the film. And in nine of them, he needs to be a coach. And in three of them, he needs to be a father. So going with someone who was an actual coach over someone who was an actor, uh, was the, was the move. Yeah. Uh, and Walker even Walker gave him a compliment. He said, Sims is the best, one of the best scene partners he's ever had, but he doesn't think that Sims could play any other character. That's what's so interesting to me about whenever quote unquote, non-actors act, especially in a role like this, where it's not you're not an extra, like he's a very main character in this is, um, I guess it can be easy to get caught up. Like as an actor, sometimes you can get caught up in like, Oh, what does the shot look like? Like, am I hitting my marks or whatever? It's just a different, you have different things on your mind, but him, he's just like being a coach. You know what I mean? So like, he's not necessarily where he's like, you do your job and I'll do mine. Um, and so that's, what's I think interesting about directing, people from both of those categories, like the trained actor who's done this for a while and the guy who's never acted before, but speaks the language of wrestling, because I'm curious how you had to do notes differently for each of them. Because obviously with Walker, you can talk to him like a director talks to an actor, you know, there's like a y'all speak the same language, but then, uh, with Mark Sims, like you of course speak the same wrestling language, but I'm curious, like, was it ever difficult to, um, give notes in between takes or something like that and change the whole language that you're speaking between each of them. Oh, a hundred percent. Mark, Mark Sims is a very tactical dude 
and Walker is a very emotional dude. So all yeah. of the, all of the notes were given based on that. And we, mm-hmm. I even had a moment where, you know, we were working through a scene and I was talking to Mark and I was like, I was talking to Sims and I said, you know, right now you look like you're proud of him. I want you to look proud of yourself for making him that good at wrestling essentially was what I said to him. And in my head, I was like, you know, that maybe is a little goofy, but I hope that's that, you know, helps him understand what I'm coming from. Yeah. And he goes, Ned, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I have no <laughs> idea what the fuck that means. And then Walker comes over <laughs> and Walker's like, okay, look, Sims, here's me proud of myself and does, you know, his thing. And then he's like, okay, here's me proud of, you know, someone else or something. Like, And, and Sims is like, oh, that was pretty good. You know, that's good. So <laughs> For, for Walker, all of the notes were, you know, what you're supposed to be doing, scenario-based, action-verb-based, you know, talking about mm. character backstory, things of that nature. With Sims, he would say, how many seconds do you want me to wait before I kick open this door? Or before I attack this person, wow. how many steps should I take? Or Super how many analytical. seconds should I wait? Super, like, what? where do I need to be? What mark do I need to be at? At what point? And once hmm. that game plan's down, it actually made him more natural than... Right. Um, it made him more natural than letting him do whatever he wanted because then he knew that he was doing, you know, what was needed for the scene. Right. There's a, there's a scene that got cut from the film uh, where Sims plays the piano at one point and he, he started going, he started playing the piano and he was moving his head back and forth. And I, you know, we cut and my note was move your head a little bit less. And he was like, how much less? And I was like, okay, well you're in like a three inch radius right now. I need you to do a two inch radius. So we roll again and he nails it because that's how he thinks. Yeah. But he doesn't want to be told, you know, you should play the piano differently because you're thinking about whatever, your wife, your kid, your whatever. Right. He wants to be told how many inches do I move my head back and forth when I do this? Wow. You know? So. Yeah. Well, especially with something that is so technical, like wrestling, you know, you can, that's a film right. where you, where you have answers to those questions about like, you know, those super analytical questions. So how do you think you grew as a director from this project, like going into it, did you, I'm curious how, I mean, obviously COVID messed everything up, but, but outside of that, like, I guess I'm curious how prepared you felt going into it. Um, and how much of a different director you feel at now that production is done. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't think I was a director before making this movie and I'd like to think that I am now. And Mm -hmm. I had, I, this was basically film school for me. This I learned more in a week than I've ever could learn in a decade of SCAD. Right. And uh, this was this was the foundation for everything. But I mm-hmm. felt really confident in, for the most part, I felt really confident in the team. You know, um, and I, when I'm saying for the most part, I'm about to say something else. I don't mean for the most part. I felt confident in the team. I felt very confident in the team. You know, the people that I was able to get for this film are all incredible and are really, really good at what they do and gave me a lot of respect and took mm-hmm. a chance on me because this is my first directorial thing. And I really appreciate them coming to Virginia and making this movie with me. And they they did fantastic. Um, but as a writer, I'm someone who writes a lot. And by the time we ended up making the movie, I'd written the script like a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the most confidence because if someone said, Hey, why doesn't X thing happen? Or why doesn't he do this? I'd already written a version of the script that addressed Hmm. anything. Yeah. So if ever there was a question of why are we doing X thing? I I felt confident that I'd already written whatever that suggestion was. was. So I felt Hmm. really solid in the script. 
Um, mm-hmm. I felt really solid in the source material and that gave me the confidence to do it, you know, um, is, you know, I've got the blueprint, I've got the script and I, now I just need to follow this blueprint and be true to the emotions that this blueprint lay, lays out. And mm-hmm. that's the goal for the rest of this film. What was, was there like a specific scene that was really hard for you as a director? I don't necessarily mean only in an emotional sense, but like, uh, I mean, you, you know, probably, um, as I'm sure a lot of the audience does who are filmmakers that like problems arise out of nowhere <laughs> and can, you right. know, the sun's going down. There's this, I forget who said it, but there's this great quote. That's like, you find out what kind of a director you are when the sun's going down and you need four shots, but you have time to get two, you know, um, like when you're Fincher said that that was okay. Gotcha. That was Fincher. Uh, I think that's so true. And I felt that in so many different ways on blueberries, was there any specific, uh, situation that you can recall that like afterwards you're like okay like i know you said you're right. a director afterwards but i'm wondering if there's a specific thing we're walking away you're like all right now I, I learned so much in that those few moments yeah yeah the 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 scene from the film that was really hard was the regional wrestling tournament and that's the third scene in the film and the one that had the most everything and mm. that scene was really hard for me because We have this whole giant gym at our disposal and we have a 40 by 40 wrestling mat that's huge and we have 10 to 15 extras and we need to make it look like we have 50 to 100 extras Mm -hmm. and we've got stunts involved and we've got you know probably six or seven characters involved all with individual conflicts stemming from each other so we had in that scene i've got evan my main character i've got coach and they have their whole interaction. Mm-hmm. I have Rami, who's the character that Adi plays, and their relationship, Evan and Evan and Adi's relationship. And then I have Rami's mom in the stands, and then I have the relationship between Evan and Rami's mom. And then I have the referee and the conflict between Evan and the referee, a coach and the referee, and Rami and the referee. And then I also have Vince, who's the name of the character who is Evan's opponent. And then mm-hmm. I have the conflict between Evan and Vince and the interaction between Vince and the referee. So mm-hmm. then breaking that down and figuring out how to block that without jumping the line, how to do the stunts correctly so that they're safe, but we feel the impacts and it feels like it's, you know, truly, truly violent. Um, it was a lot. And it, that's the basis for the whole film. That's the inciting right. incident, but that that's the roots for everything. So mm-hmm. if I miss a beat there, the whole film crumbles, you know, right. There's a lot that needs to be understood in like a minute scene with so many people involved that, mm-hmm. You know, you can't mess it up. And that was a hard one. And we had a full day to do it. And our lighting was pretty minimal. And our camera setups were were smart. And of course, Kai killed it at that. And, uh, but it was rough. I mean, we had like, I don't even know, 30 or 40 shots to get. And a lot of them required stunts. And a lot of them required yeah. people to do it full tilt. And it was incredibly hard endurance-wise for the actors. Because mm-hmm. um, they're wrestling for 12 hours. Yeah. So... That was a difficult scene, you know, just trying yeah. to block out relationships. How, how do you manage uh, those stunts and those wrestling scenes, especially with your actors who aren't, you know, super trained wrestlers? The sequence in regional specifically is a really interesting one. And that was kind of the foundation for how we treat everything, because that's the first real wrestling match you see. So that mm-hmm. one was going to affect the whole film. So we, we created shot design. So we look towards the crowd at first and we see Adi pinning his opponent. And that Adi pinning his opponent was not rehearsed until the day of. We, we had a move for him to do. And Sims came in and said, that move isn't good enough. I'm going to teach him something else. 
And I said, okay, you've got an hour because we're setting up lights and a camera. So teach him to move in an hour. This is during setups Sims, that this is happening. <laughs> this is during setups. This is during setups. Sim, Sim wow. says, Ned, wait, I'm, I'm going to make Shakespeare happen. And I'm like, okay, go make Shakespeare happen. <laughs> so him and Adi run off and he teaches Adi this move that's really complicated. And Adi comes back and nails it. And we have all these people up in the stands, right? So we have like 10 to 15 people on the left side of the stands. So we then have them move over to the right side of the stands and we comp them. And then later on, we duplicate it even more to get a full crowd. But hmm. we knew that we needed to get this visual effect shot first to establish, look, there's a bunch of people in the crowd. And then we flip the 180 and start shooting towards the opposite side of the gym where the bleacher walls are up. So now we can avoid all of those extras and then hmm. we create background movement and hmm. that helps create the illusion that there's more people than they are. So yeah. once we flip the 180, now we go to the Evan and Vince section of the film. And Vince is the opponent who hurts Evan. And uh, Rami's opponent is a high school wrestler that I knew named Varun, who's a great guy. And the opponent for Walker was Vince, who is played by my, my roommate, Matt Paulson, who is, again, fantastic dude and a state qualifying wrestler from Colorado. So he's in there as well. And um, he, he, he's great. You know, he's wrestled at that level before. So Walker's mm. already made a little, you know, Walker's already wrestling against someone who is really, really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, that came from intense, intense rehearsals. So we, we, we coordinated that. So Matt and I choreographed the fight probably in September. And we ended up looking at like 10 different wrestling moves and recording them and showing them to our friends who didn't wrestle and saying, which one looks the coolest, which one looks the hardest which one looks the most dynamic. And from there we created the choreography and we filmed it from multiple angles. And then we showed Walker. And then I worked out a deal with the jujitsu gym in Savannah where we could come in and train and work oh, on cool. it. So Walker was training wrestling, I don't know, two to three times a week, either in Forsyth park or in this jujitsu gym, learning these moves over and over and over again. So that was all super choreographed. Um, and then from there it was dialing it in and having it, you know, be like Matt, give Walker a little bit more resistance. So Walker actually has to lift this guy who weighs 200 pounds of pure muscle up in the air, you know, uh, and that, that speaks for itself. You don't really need to act, but the one right. more component that was really helpful is that I had my good friend, Joe Paul, who is a, a wrestler from Virginia, who is a two-time state, uh, champion come in and he helped, you know, make sure the, the, the moves were landing, made sure that all the, the form was good. And he actually stunt doubled for Walker in a few really small clips hmm. and took big hits. Um, so there's a few clips in there where it's Joe taking a really big hit for Walker. And part of it is not that Walker can't take that hit like he can all day, but if Walker actually gets concussed or messes up his arm, mm -hmm. the whole filming shuts down and yeah. Joe does this, you know, at a college level right now. So he, mm -hmm. he can take the hit. So there's a few hits that are taken wow. by a stunt double. Um, and the rest of it is Walker being really dedicated and Adi being really dedicated and getting mm. buff and strong for the role and learning how to wrestle. There was this really cool moment on blueberries where it was our last day and we're filming this kitchen scene and we were, <laughs> one of our methods of blueberries was just, just film a ton. <laughs> like we have so much coverage right. of everything, like probably more than you would ever need for a 12 minute simple family drama that this is. Um, Sure. And we got enough coverage of this, of the scene of his, it's our last day of shooting. Things are going well. We're like an hour ahead of schedule and Walker. Um, I, I'm trying to decide like, you know, are we ready to move on? And, and he pulls me aside and he's like, I'm giving you like 
10% of what I could do. Not meaning that he wasn't trying, but like he was nailing what I wanted him to nail and it was perfect. Um, but he just was kind of saying like, I'm ready to break out like a bull ready to just break out of the pen. And it was so cool. Not that he was screaming or anything, but it was just so cool how he just took that character and just like fully through whenever there was no, uh, worry on if this take is even usable or not. He just like busted out. And that was a really cool thing for me, uh, as a director. Now hammer is, is a very different role for him because it's, it's way more like the emotion is still super intense, but it's more aggressive, um, and dialed up. Like there's argument scenes, like you said, there's the abuse scene. It's very physical and stuff like that. So was there any time, like I'm imagining, um, that the argument scene with his father, um, when, was there ever a time in which you just told him like, now's the time explode because he's really good at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean the whole, the whole strategy was a little different because that scene was, that seems like the really hard one, the argument scene that we're talking about and Walker's capable of like anything. So yeah. It was really about dialing in blocking really early and trying to direct that to create as much conflict as possible. And then moving on from there, it was almost about dialing it up, kind of like what you're saying is, mm -hmm. but you know, you, you'll see a lot of these, a lot of these short films, especially that one of the big issues is that the acting is too over the top and right. you know, it's over, it's overdone and we never wanted right. to have that. So Walker was great and would usually start at a more subtle level and then we would dial it up to what it needed to be as opposed to starting big and dialing down. Um, but there was a few scenes that a few takes that he was just on it and it didn't, it didn't end up being a conversation of like, Hey, this is the one that you gotta let it go. But it ended up being that the chemistry was right. And Sims acted mm -hmm. the right way. And, you know, maybe, maybe there was something that I said, Hey, Sims push him a little bit harder during this scene, like literally push him harder. And that right, would get Walker right. to the right place or mm -hmm. vice versa where both the actors are very physical dudes and they're both people who want to have command over their environment. And once you start mm -hmm. pitting those people against each other, then that thing is going to come out of it naturally. And, um, that, that was a lot of it, but there was, there's a few moments where one of the best, one of the best, the take that we use in the film of Walker's close up in that scene, which he absolutely nails came from, we were shooting Walker does his whole Walker does all the lines. He walks up to Sims and Sims drops a line and forgets a line. And without asking for permission or me saying anything, they both just reset back to their very beginnings. And Kai didn't even know what was happening and just operated back with Walker. <laughs> and then they started the scene over. From, they started the scene over from scratch without any direction. And Walker wow. just nailed it on that second go. Was just yelling and you could totally feel the emotion and was totally, it was totally what it needed to be. And hmm. um, there was moments like that. And then there was some where, there was a few moments in the film where we can't do them again. They're a one shot deal, like the abuse scene. And mm -hmm. that one was all about preparation and learning the camera move and figuring out where you need to go. Because when people fight in real life, they end up it's on the sloppy. Ground. Yeah. 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 You know, when you fight in a movie, you get a punch, someone falls over. Every real fight's going to end in grappling. You know, mm -hmm. if the opponents are evenly matched, they're both going to end up on the ground. So it was like figuring out how to get the camera low enough where we can get the stuff where they're standing up. We can get the stuff where they're on the ground and we can do the finale of it. Uh, but if we, anyone messes up, if focus goes soft, if a boom pull gets in a shot, mm. you know, I mean, it, it was stressful, but that was a, that was a go. So before we did that one take, we didn't go into the one take. They did all of their lines in a wide. 
they did the whole scene and then fought. And hmm. that was one of the best takes we, you know, for audio, honestly, is they were in it because they knew they were about to actually fight. So the apprehension of right. that helped make the moment more important because they knew they were going to fight at the end of it. And both of them were not going to back down from a challenge of this physical moment. That's so interesting, man. So, you know, we talked about COVID messing up Hammer. I know very much how much it sucks to have COVID mess up your film plans. Um, but I also know what it feels like to finally make something that you've been wanting to make for so, so long. So once you called rap, how did you feel about the production walking away? I felt really good about it. I felt really, I felt really excited and proud. And it, it's the thing that I'm most proud of artistically that I've ever done. And that's a really good feeling. Yeah. And I feel like I lived up to some sort of potential that I had set out for myself of, I'm going to make this film. So that, you know, the, the feeling of achieving a goal is fantastic. Um, and mm. especially doing it with a lot of people that you, that you love and are great friends of yours is, is even more fantastic. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm really excited for those people who work so hard on it to see it hopefully on a big screen and mm. with the full sound mix and everything, mm. you know, that I think is going to be the real reward is watching the people who helped make it watch, you know, watch it for the first time. Yeah. I think yeah. that would just be the cherry on top of the whole experience, but it feels, it feels good. It feels good. I want to finish it now. We're, we're in post-production yeah. finishing up the score. We're finishing up the sound design. Mm -hmm. So, you know, very much still in the works, but uh, I can't wait to have it done. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, I hopped on a really quick FaceTime with uh, a good mutual friend of ours, Joe Russ. He's a producer here at Tungsten. He's been on the podcast a, a few episodes ago. Um, and I just kind of asked him, I was like, what do you know about Ned that I don't, that I should pick his brain on? <laughs> and he <laughs> told me that you are working on a, you're going into your senior year. You're working, you're writing and directing the narrative project, uh, which for those yep. non-SCAD people, directing the narrative is a class at SCAD where you make a short film, pretty simple, you direct it. Uh, a thesis project and writing the feature for Hammer. <laughs> and you're doing all this yep. simultaneously. You're writing a ton. Yep. Um, how is that? process going i'm really curious about the thesis for hammer he, he also told me that you um maybe expressed that you've been like struggling to write short stuff because you think in feature length so much so i guess i'm just curious all these things right. that you're working on as a writer you know what how is that how's that going it's going well it's going well i'm writing i'm writing three things right now i'm writing my senior thesis which has to do with reincarnation um, I'm writing and directing the narrative, which is a, a crime, a crime movie about eco-terrorism. And then I'm writing the hammer, you know, feature length script and the hammer feature. A bunch of script small projects, is, you know? <laughs> yeah. A bunch of small projects. I can't, that's one of my biggest weaknesses is I can't, I'm so bad at writing two people in a room. It always has to be right. some ridiculous thing. Yeah. Um, but the, the hammer feature process has been very, very interesting. And I've been able to learn a lot more about the characters by writing, uh, you know, 50 pages, 60 pages about them rather than mm -hmm. just writing, you know, 12. Uh, right. But it's really, it's really hard. But all the themes that I've been trying to address through the short of, you know, accomplishment through achievement and self-worth and body image issues and masculinity and what that entails, um, all of those ideas are, are given a bigger canvas with the feature. Uh, and I'm excited to explore them even more. Mm -hmm. But the writing part of it is a really difficult thing. And I write a lot of versions. So hmm. finishing things on the writing side for me is really hard is knowing like, okay, this is done and I can't tweak right. it anymore. And that's one of the hardest things that I struggle with as an artist of, of saying, okay, I'm done. This is ready to shoot. And, yeah. uh, you know, not getting caught up in option paralysis or getting caught up in what if this happens. 
Well, how did you know when the hammer short script was done? Yeah, it, I did. Um, I rewrote it. There's a there's a four page there's a four page ADR script for Hammer. Um, you know, there's there's uh, I you know there's all sorts of I I cast uh, background refs and I cast background um, coaches and uh, extra wrestlers and I had them read lines for scenes where there are people talking in the background and stuff like that and uh, you know the whole film is is probably like ninety percent scripted. But there is a bunch of moments where, you know, Adi, for example, is a great, you know, improvisational actor. And he's got mm-hmm. a bunch of lines that are not in the scripts during regionals. And, you know, Walker, who's a great actor, is adding little syllables here and there to make lines hit more. Like sometimes, you know, you have a line that needs 20 syllables and the line's 18 syllables. Um, right. You know, but Walker will add like, okay, all right. And then he'll finish the line so he can ramp up. But he, he sometimes you need a few more syllables to ramp up to the emotion that you need to get to. Mm-hmm. And the writer hasn't provided that to an actor. Um, but I knew, I knew I needed to stop writing when we shot it, but I was rewriting lines as, as we were going and, you know, new, new scripts were happening until the last second. And, Mm -hmm. uh, some key players on the, on the film probably didn't even read the final script because they were too busy prepping to make the film. And I was busy caught up writing random stuff. But, uh, that's one of the hard parts about post-production is when you, when you write, you've got to finish by the time you shoot. And when you shoot, you got to finish by the time you, you know, you're done shooting mm-hmm. your camera rentals over. You can't shoot anymore, mm-hmm. but in post-production, you could do that infinitely. You could right. re-edit the film and rescore the film and re-sound design the film, you know, mm-hmm. for years and there's no deadline for it. So knowing when to be done is so important. Yeah. So when did you know picture lock was decided and was that difficult to get there? Picture lock. Oh, so difficult. So Robbie, <laughs> Robbie Gagne is the editor for this project who is fantastic. Uh, any director who wants to work with the best of the best work with Robbie, but don't do it while I'm doing it because I want him for a few more projects in the future. Right. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's so good. So good. So I shipped, I shipped him drives right after we finished shooting. He finished a rough cut in like a week or two. We sat down and we watched it. And then we worked, we worked probably like seven to eight hours a week together in the editing room, editing it. And we ended mm-hmm. up doing 12 different full edits with 33 different sequences going into it of, you know, alternate endings to scenes or alternate takes. And by the end of it, we were like, you know, do you have any notes? And he was like, no. And then he was like, do you have any notes? And I was like, no. So we grabbed, we grabbed some, some friends of ours from down the street who'd never seen it and never read it and said, mm-hmm. hey, watch this real quick and give me your thoughts. And they understood what was going on. And they had two little notes that were questions we had of like, should we make this shot, you know, eight frames longer or this shot eight frames shorter? And they agreed with us. So we made those changes and we locked it. That must have been really cool to to get to that point. That's a big point in post-production. Oh, it was great. It was great because we we wrapped in December and we locked the film in in May. And it was Mm -hmm. like, that's a lot of months, especially for this this thing. But there's three scenes that we shot that are not in the film. Hmm. And... There, it was a seven day shoot and we have a lot of footage in a lot of locations and a lot of stunt sequences that needed to be really yeah. refined. So, and we, we had nine visual effects shots, um, in the, in the film that I, that I think are pretty well hidden and are hard to I figure out where they I didn't even know you had any. So I'd say they're perfectly right. hidden. <laughs> you said that I was like, Good, the, thank what you. VFX would you need? <laughs> yeah. So. We've got, we've got like nine VFX shots in there and, uh, because of that, it's like it was a 21 scene script and it ended up being an 18 scene movie. But it's like there's a lot of there's a lot to go into it. So Robbie killed it and was able to manage all the timelines and all the things that are going on 
and the production crew was able to kill it because we had so many locations and a lot of them were really big and expansive and it was hard to manage a, manage a student team when we're in this giant stadium or we're in this, you know, wrestling gym. So, um, like I've said, you've done a lot of DP and camera work. Um, you know, you said now, like you feel like a, a director now. So whenever you're writing, how are you visualizing the story? Like, do you see a story or do you feel it? Like, I guess I'm just curious what's going through your mind when you're writing stuff. Do you automatically have a visual attached to it since you are also a really talented DP and, and know the ins and outs of cinematography or are you only just thinking about story? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm really, I'm really thinking about story, but I'm writing for locations generally. Cause I find that you can write a dialogue sequence and you can have it. And if you put it in a room with white walls with no art on it, you're, you're doing yourself a huge disservice and you're mm. doing yourself, you know, you're doing the audience a disservice. And if you write a scene that can take place anywhere, why, why not make it take place in the coolest possible right. location that looks the best, right? You know, Rock, Rocky running through the suburbs is not a cool movie scene. You know, Rock, Rocky punching with bricks as he runs down the streets of Philadelphia is pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. So, you know, clearly that's understood in the, in the fight movie genre of, you know, this better be pretty awesome visually. And mm. uh, that's something that I think about a lot is what's the visual interest of the scene? If this is a scene that takes place in a family room, you know, that's kind of boring. I don't really want to see scenes that take place in family rooms. Mm. What's going to be there to make it interesting? What props or what lighting or what can I build into the world that way? Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's also better for your actors because it gives them to some like to use. You know, definitely. You know, and and like the the you know, there's two scenes in Hammer where Evan goes on runs, and those where he goes on runs are super important to me because it's like this is going to be a boring scene if the location is not good. And mm -hmm. same thing with the wrestling is like, what's the coolest wrestling mat I can find that someone will let me put actors on, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to be yeah. doing this on a plain black mat that has no personality. Um, you know, what's the mm -hmm. locations, but I don't, the only way that I think in shots when I'm writing generally is how I structure my slug lines of like, you know, when I push enter, that's a new shot is I try to set it up of like, you know, if I'm writing about the emotions of someone's face, that's probably a close up. If that's its own line, you right. know, that's a close up. And then this is an establishing shot if it if it's maybe a paragraph talking about a house. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I try to think mostly story oriented and then figure out what to do later. Mm -hmm. Um but all of those decisions need to be the cinematography decisions need to be so influenced by the scripts. Like Kai ended up reading Hammer at its earliest, and he was like, Look, I'm really seeing you know, a character that has tunnel vision and that idea hmm. of tunnel vision ended up informing the visual style where we shot the whole thing on Cowboy anamorphics, which are, are, you know, vintage and really messed up anamorphics. So their vignetting and their distortion near the edges of the frame are super extreme and hmm. their focus breathing is super extreme and their flaring is super extreme. And that ended up being the right choice for hammer because when you have a concussion, you're super sensitive to light and anamorphic lenses are also super sensitive to light and they mm. flare in a really beautiful way when they're sensitive to light. So then the flaring of anamorphic becomes a visual motif that represents the concussion and how that's affecting Evan's mind state and the distorted edges and, and, and how tight the frame is shooting in 239 to one. And then post-concussion, we, we switched to 255 to one is mm. just this really claustrophobic, oppressive frame. Yeah. So, wow. so that's what we were going for is, you know, 
figuring out how to convey a person's mind state through lensing. Yeah. And that's, what's so cool about having someone that is so, uh, both like having you with the DP experience, but also your DP being so up to date on the technical stuff is that like, you get to have fun with those, but you're not stressed about it. <laughs> you're not worried about, right. you know, the frame, that kind of stuff. Um, man, this is so interesting. I'm so glad I've gotten to pick your brain. I want to end on this final question that I love asking people both on and off the podcast. Um, you're going into your senior year. You've got these three projects that you're working on. One of them being the hammer feature script, which I'm sure is going to be incredible once it's done. What is the North star that is keeping you going? The thing that you're always striving for. I don't necessarily mean a job or like a place you'd like to work. I mean, like a philosophy towards filmmaking, the kind of stuff you want to make, the kind of impact you want to have, however you want to interpret that story. Um, I'm just curious, what is that thing that you're forever striving for as you move forward in your career? Uh, yeah, it's a big question. That's it a big is. question. It is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't know exactly what the North Star is. I think being able to make being able to make a feature film that I'm immensely proud of would be fantastic. I think that's the North Star is being given the reins of a feature and making it and liking it at the end, even if it's not perfect and it has flaws, but saying, look, I made this thing and I'm really proud of it. You know, that, that would be incredible because yeah. it stinks. I've made a lot of things. I've made a lot of things in, in life that I'm not proud of and that I, you know, don't like that much. And what was really exciting about the hammer short for me was I made something that I'm really proud of for the first time. And that's mm -hmm. really, you know, beautiful. And if I could do that on a feature level and maybe, you know, a few people like that film, that would be, that'd be amazing. Well, I'm glad you're proud of it because you absolutely should be. I feel very lucky that I've gotten to see it. It's so good. I loved it. I appreciate you sharing it. And it's been so fun to pick your brain about it. Um, and, you know, I hope we can work together in the future because I know you're only gonna, if this is the thing that made you a director, then I can only imagine <laughs> the stuff that you're going to direct in the future. So, um, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to, you know, chat about it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate all the kind words too. Thank you, West. Yeah, of course. Um, everyone, thank you so much for watching or listening. If you only listen, you should check out the video version on our YouTube channel. Links to that is in the description. Um, episodes have been a little sparse. We've missed a couple weeks because I've been traveling a lot. We're announcing when I'm recording this in like two days, we're announcing this project on Tungsten that I'm excited about. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping to be moving soon. And once I move, I'll like I'm hoping to upgrade a lot of this. I want to have like a proper backdrop, a proper camera, all that kind of stuff. So working on a lot of upgrades over here at the podcast. So, um, you know, pardon the dust while we do that, but <laughs> thank y'all for listening. New episodes typically come out every Monday. Ned, thank you again. Links to all of Ned's stuff is in the description as well. Make sure you check out his stuff, follow him on Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Hire him if you need new work. Uh, he does good stuff. So Ned, thank you again. This has been so much fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening.